Pod Bless Robert Mueller, a translation for Texans. Part 4. Report on the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. This special series was brought to you by the makers of Pod Bless Texas, featuring Kendall Scudder and Lillian Salerno. Welcome to part four of Pod Bless Robert Mueller, a translation for Texans. Typically, this is featuring both myself and Lillian Salerno, but she is earning herself the title of sleepiest co-host. And so I am moving forward, uh, pressing on, and we are beginning in Article 4, Section 6. Um, Again, if you are just now listening to this episode, you really need to go back because you are in Episode 4 of a mini-part series. Number of parts still to be determined. (laughs) Um Okay, let's go ahead and get started back. 6. Events at the Republican National Convention Trump campaign officials met with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak during the week of the Republican National Convention. The evidence indicates that those interactions were brief and non-substantive. During platform committee meetings immediately before the convention, J.D. Gordon, a senior campaign advisor on policy and national security, diluted a proposed amendment to the Republican Party platform expressing support for providing lethal assistance to Ukraine in response to Russian aggression. Gordon requested that platform committee personnel revise the proposed amendment to state that only appropriate assistance be provided to Ukraine. The original sponsor of the Lethal Assistance Amendment stated that Gordon told her, the sponsor, that he was on the phone with candidate Trump in connection with his request to dilute the language. Gordon denied making that statement to the sponsor, although he acknowledged it was possible he mentioned having previously spoken to the candidate about the subject matter. The investigation did not establish that Gordon spoke to or was directed by the candidate to make that proposal. Gordon said that he sought the change because he believed the proposed language was inconsistent with Trump's position on Ukraine. A. Ambassador Kislyak's encounters with Senator Sessions and J.D. Gordon the week of the RNC. In July 2016, Senator Sessions and Gordon spoke at the Global Partners in Diplomacy event, a conference co-sponsored by the State Department and the Heritage Foundation, held in Cleveland, Ohio, the same week as the Republican National Convention, RNC, or Convention. Approximately 80 foreign ambassadors to the United States, including Kislyak, were invited to the conference. On July 20, 2016, Gordon and Sessions delivered their speeches at the conference. In his speech, Gordon stated in pertinent part that the United States should have better relations with Russia. During Sessions' speech, he took questions from the audience, one of which may have been asked by Kislyak. When the speeches concluded, several ambassadors lined up to greet the speakers. Gordon shook hands with Kislyak and reiterated that he had meant what he said in the speech about improving U.S.-Russia relations. Sessions separately spoke with between six and twelve ambassadors, including Kislyak. Although Sessions stated during interviews with the office that he had no specific recollection of what he discussed with Kislyak, he believed that that the two spoke for only a few minutes and that they would have exchanged pleasantries and said some things about U.S. Russia relations. 
After that evening, Gordon attended a reception as part of the conference. Gordon ran into Kislyak as the two prepared plates of food, and they decided to sit at the same table to eat. They were joined at the table by the ambassadors from Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, and by Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. As they ate, Gordon and Kislyak talked for what Gordon estimated to have been three to five minutes, during which Gordon again mentioned that he meant what he said in his speech about improving U.S.-Russia relations. B. Change to Republican Party Platform In preparation for the 2016 convention, foreign policy advisors to the Trump campaign, working with the Republican National Committee, reviewed the 2012 convention's foreign policy platform to identify divergence between the earlier platform and candidate Trump's positions. (laughs) Quite the difference! The campaign team discussed toning down language from the 2012 platform that identified Russia as the country's number one threat, given the candidate's belief that there needed to be better U.S. relations with Russia. The RNC Platform Committee sent the 2016 draft platform to the National Security and Defense Platform Subcommittee on July 10, 2016, the evening before its first meeting to propose amendments. Although only delegates could participate in formal discussions and vote on the platform, the Trump campaign could request changes and members of the Trump campaign uh, attended these committee meetings. Josh, John Mashburn, the campaign's policy director, helped oversee the campaign's involvement in the platform committee meetings. He told the office that he directed campaign staff at the convention, including J.D. Gordon, to take a hands-off approach and only to challenge platform planks that they directly contradicted Trump's wishes. On July 11, 2016, Delegate Diana Denman submitted a proposed platform amendment that included provision of armed support for Ukraine. The amendment described Russia's ongoing military aggression in Ukraine and announced support for maintaining and, if warranted, increasing sanctions against Russia until Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity were fully restored and for providing lethal defense weapons to Ukraine's armed forces and greater coordination with NATO on defense planning. Gordon reviewed the proposed platform changes, including Denman's. Gordon stated that he flagged his amendment because of Trump's stated position on Ukraine, which Gordon personally heard the candidate say at the March 31st foreign policy meeting, namely that the Europeans should take primary responsibility for any assistance to Ukraine, that there should be improved U.S.-Russian relations, and that he did not want to start World War III over that region. Gordon told the office that Trump's statements on the campaign trail following the March meeting underscored those positions to the point where Gordon felt obliged to object to the proposed platform change and seek its dilution. On July 11, 2016, at a meeting of the National Security and Defense Platform Subcommittee, Denman offered her amendment. Gordon and another campaign staffer, Matt Miller, approached a committee co-chair and asked him to table the amendment to permit further discussion. Gordon's concerns with the amendment was the language about providing lethal defense weapons to Ukraine. Miller did not have any independent basis to believe that this language contradicted Trump's views and relied on Gordon's recollection of the candidate's views. According to Denman, She spoke with Gordon and Matt Miller, and they told her that they had to clear the language and that Gordon was talking to to New York. 
Denman told others that she was asked by the two Trump campaign staffers to strike lethal defense weapons from the proposal, but that she refused. Denman recalled Gordon saying that he was on the phone with candidate Trump, but she was skeptical whether that was true. Gordon denied having told Denman that he was on the phone with Trump, although he acknowledged it was possible that he mentioned having previously spoken to the candidate about the subject matter. Gordon's phone records reveal a call to Sessions' office in Washington that afternoon, but do not include calls directly to a number associated with Trump. And according to President's written answers to the office's questions, he does not recall being involved in the change in language of the platform amendment. Gordon stated that he tried to reach Rick Dearborn, a senior foreign policy advisor, and Mashburn, the campaign policy director. Gordon stated that that he connected with both of them. He could not recall if by phone or if in person and apprised them of the language he took issue with in the proposed amendment. Gordon recalled no objection by either Dearborn or Mashburn and that all three campaign advisors supported the alternative formulation, appropriate assistance. Dearborn recalled Gordon warning them about the amendment, but not weighing in because Gordon was more familiar with the campaign's foreign policy stance. Mashburn stated that Gordon reached him and he told Gordon that Trump had not taken a stance on the issue and that a campaign should not intervene. When the amendment came up again in the committee's proceedings, the subcommittee changed the amendment by striking the legal defense weapons language and replacing it with appropriate assistance. Gordon stated that he and the subcommittee co-chair ultimately agreed to replace the language but about armed assistance with appropriate assistance. The subcommittee accordingly approved Denman's amendment, but with the term appropriate assistance. Gordon stated that, to his recollection, this was the only change sought by the campaign. Sam Clovis, the campaign's national co-chair and chief policy advisor, stated that he was surprised by the change and did not believe that it was in line with Trump's stance. Mashburn stated that when he saw the word appropriate assistance, he believed that Gordon had violated Mashburn's directive not to intervene. Number seven, post-convention contacts with Kislyak. Ambassador Kislyak continued his efforts to interact with campaign officials with responsibility for the foreign policy portfolio, among them Sessions and Gordon, in the weeks after the convention. The office did not identify evidence in those interactions of coordination between the campaign and the Russian government. A. Ambassador Kislyak invites J.D. Gordon to breakfast at the ambassador's residence. On August 3, 2016, an official from the embassy of the Russian Federation in the United States wrote to Gordon on behalf of Ambassador Kislyak, inviting Gordon to have breakfast-slash-tea with the ambassador at his residence in Washington, D.C. following the week. Gordon responded five days later to decline the invitation. He wrote, These days are not optimal for us as we are busily knocking down a constant stream of false media stories while also preparing for the first debate with HRC. Hope to take a rain check for another time when things quiet down a bit. Please pass along my regards to the ambassador. The investigation did not identify evidence that Gordon made any other arrangements to meet or met with Kislyak after this email. B. Senator Sessions' September 2016 meeting with Ambassador Kislyak. 
Also in August 2016, a representative of the Russian embassy contacted Sessions Senate office about setting up a meeting with Kislyak. At the time, Sessions was a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and would meet with foreign officials in that capacity. But Sessions' staff reported, and Sessions himself acknowledged, that meeting requests from ambassadors increased substantially in 2016 as Sessions assumed a prominent role in the Trump campaign and his name was mentioned for potential cabinet-level positions in a future Trump administration. On September 8, 2016, Sessions met with Kislyak in his Senate office. Sessions said that he believed he was doing a campaign of service by meeting with foreign ambassadors, including Kislyak. He was accompanied in the meeting by at least two of his Senate staff, Sandra Luff, his legislative director, and Pete Landrum, who handled military affairs. The meeting lasted less than 30 minutes. Session voiced concerns about Russia's sale of a missile defense system to Iran, Russian planes buzzing U.S. military assets in the Middle East, and Russian aggression in emerging democracies such as the Ukraine and Moldova. Kislyak offered explanations on these issues and complained about NATO land forces in former Soviet bloc countries that border Russia. Landrum recalled that Kislyak referred to the presidential campaign as an interesting campaign. (laughs) I bet he did. And Sessions also recalled Kislyak saying that the Russian government was receptive to the overtures Trump had laid out during his campaign. None of the attendees, though, remembered any discussions of Russian election interference or any request that Sessions convey information from the Russian government to the Trump campaign. During the meeting, Kislyak invited Sessions to further discuss U.S.-Russia relations with him over a meal at the ambassador's residence. Sessions was non-committal when Kislyak extended the invitation. After the meeting ended, Luff advised Session against accepting the one-on-one meeting with Kislyak, whom she assessed to be an old-school KGB guy. Neither Luff nor Landrum recalled that Sessions followed up on the invitation or made any further effort to dine or meet with Kislyak before the November 2016 election. Sessions and Landrum recalled that after the election, some efforts were made to arrange a meeting between Sessions and Kislyak. According to Sessions, the request came through CNI and would have involved a meeting between Sessions and Kislyak, two other ambassadors, and the governor of Alabama. (laughs) Sessions, however, was in New York on the day of the anticipated meeting and was unable to attend. The investigation did not identify evidence that the two men met at any point after their September 8th meeting. Number 8. Paul Manafort Paul Manafort served on the Trump campaign, including a period as campaign chairman from March to August 2016. Manafort had connections to Russia through his prior work for Russian oligarch Oleg Deraspaska and later through his work for a pro-Russian regime in Ukraine. Manafort stayed in touch with these contacts through the campaign period through Konstantin Kalibnik, a longtime Manafort employee who previously ran Manafort's office in Kiev and who the FBI assessed to have ties to Russian intelligence. Manafort instructed Rick Gates, his deputy on the campaign and longtime employee, to provide Kalimnik with updates on the Trump campaign, including internal polling data, although Manafort claims not to recall that specific instruction. 
Manafort expected Kalimnik to share that information with others in Ukraine and with Deripaska. Gates periodically sent such polling data to Kalimnik during the campaign. Manafort also twice met Kalimnik in the United States during the campaign period and conveyed campaign information. The second meeting took place on August 2, 2016 in New York City. Kalemnik requested the meeting to deliver in person a message from former Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who was then living in Russia. The message was about a peace plan for Ukraine that Manafort has since acknowledged was a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. Several months later, after the presidential election, Kalemnik wrote an email to Manafort expressing the view, which Manafort later said he shared, that the plan's success would require U.S. support to succeed. All that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from Donald Trump. The email also stated that if Manafort were designated as the U.S. representative and started the process... Yanukovych would ensure his reception in Russia at the very top level. Manafort communicated with Kalimnik about peace plans for Ukraine on at least four occasions after their first discussions of the topic on August 2nd. December 2016, the Kalimnik email described above, January 2017, February 2017, and again in the spring of 2018. The office reviewed numerous Manafort email and text communications and asked President Trump about the plan in written questions. The investigation did not cover, uncover evidence of Manafort's passing along information about Ukrainian peace plans to the candidate or anyone else on the campaign or the administration. The office was not, however, able to gain access to all of Manafort's electronic communications. In some instances, messages were sent using encryption applications. And while Manafort denied that he spoke to members of the Trump campaign or the new administration about the peace plan, he lied to the office and the grand jury about the peace plan and his meetings with Kalimnik. And his unreliability on this subject was among the reasons that the district judge found that he breached his cooperation agreement. The office could not reliably determine Manafort's purpose in sharing internal polling data with Kalimnik during the campaign period. Manafort Redacted, grand jury. Did not see a downside to sharing campaign information and told Gates that his role in the campaign would be good for business and potentially a way to be made whole for work he previously completed in the Ukraine. As to Deripaska, Manafort claimed that by sharing campaign information with him, Deripaska might see value in their relationship and resolve a disagreement a reference to one or more outstanding lawsuits. Because of questions about Manafort's credibility and our limited ability to gather evidence on what happened to the polling data after it was sent to Kalimnik, the office could not assess what Kalimnik or others he may have given it to did with it. The office did not identify evidence of a connection between Manafort's sharing polling data and Russia's interference in the election, which had already been reported by U.S. media outlets at the time of the August 2nd meeting. The investigation did not establish that Manafort otherwise coordinated with the Russian government on its election interference efforts. A. Paul Manafort's ties to Russia and the Ukraine. Oh God, I feel like this is going to have a lot of names. 
Manafort's Russian contacts during the campaign and transition periods stem from his consultation work for Deripaska from approximately 2005 to 2009 and his separate political consulting work in Ukraine from 2005 to 2015, including through his company DMP International LLC, DMI. Kalimnit worked for Manafort in Kiev during this entire period and continued to communicate with Manafort through at least June 2018. Kalimnik, who speaks and writes Ukrainian and Russian, facilitated many of Manafort's communications with Deripaska and Ukrainian oligarchs. 1. Oleg Deripaska Consulting Work in approximately 2005, Manafort began working for Deripaska, a Russian oligarch who has a global empire involving aluminum and power companies who is closely aligned with Vladimir Putin. A memorandum describing work that Manafort performed for Deripaska in 2005 regarding the post-Soviet republics referenced the need to brief the Kremlin and the benefits that the work could confer on the Putin government. Gates described the work Manafort did for Deripaska as political risk insurance and explained that Deripaska used Manafort to install friendly political officials in countries where Deripaska had business interests. Manafort's company earned tens of millions of dollars from its work for Deripaska and was loaned millions of dollars by Deripaska as well. In 2007, Deripaska invested through another entity in Pericles Emerging Market Partners, LP. Pericles. An investment fund created by Manafort and former Manafort business partner, Richard Davis. The Pericles Fund was established to pursue investments in Eastern Europe. Deripaska was the sole investor. Gates stated in interviews with the office that the venture led to a deterioration of the relationship between Manafort and Deripaska. In particular, when the fund failed, litigation between Manafort and Deripaska ensued. Gates stated that by 2009, Manafort's business relationship with Deripaska had dried up. According to Gates, various interactions with Deripaska and his intermediaries over the past few years have involved trying to resolve the legal dispute. As described below, in 2016, Manafort, Gates, Kalimnik, and others engaged in efforts to revive the Deripaska relationship and resolve the litigation. 2. Political Consulting Work Through Deripaska, Manafort was introduced to Renat Akhmetov, a Ukrainian oligarch who hired Manafort as a political consultant. In 2005, Akhmetov hired Manafort to engage in political work supporting the Party of Regions, a political party in Ukraine that was generally understood to align with Russia. Manafort assisted the Party of Regions in regaining power, and its candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, won the presidency in 2010. Manafort became a close and trusted political advisor to Yanukovych during his time as president of Ukraine. Yanukovych served in that role until 2014 when he fled to Russia amidst popular protest. 3. Konstantin Kalimnik Kalimnik is a Russian national who has lived in both Russia and the Ukraine and was a longtime Manafort employee. 
Kalimnik has directed has direct and close access to Yanukovych and his senior entourage, and he facilitated communications between Manafort and his clients, including Yanukovych and multiple Ukrainian oligarchs. Kalimnik also maintained a relationship with Deripaska's deputy, Viktor Boyarkin, a Russian national who previously served in the defense attache office of the Russian embassy to the United States. Manafort told the office that he did not believe Kalimnik was working as a Russian spy. The FBI, however, assesses that Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence. Several pieces of the office's evidence, including witness interviews and emails obtained through court-authorized search warrants, support that assessment. Kalimnik was born on April 27, 1970, in a town that I cannot pronounce. D-N-I-P-R-O-P-E-T-R-O-V-S-K-O-B-L-A-S-T. Then of the Soviet Union, and attended the Military Institute of the Ministry of Defense from 1987 until 1992. Sam Patton, a business partner to Kalimnik, stated that Kalimnik told him that he was a translator in the Russian army for seven years and that he later worked in the Russian armament industry selling mass arms and military equipment. U.S. government visa records reveal that Kalimnik attained a visa to travel to the United States with a Russian diplomatic passport in 1997. Kalimnik worked for the International Republican Institute's IRI Moscow office, where he did translation work and general office management from 1998 to 2005. While another official recalled the incident differently, one former associate of Kalimnik's at IRI told the FBI that Kalimnik was fired from his post because his links to Russian intelligence were too strong. The same individual stated that it's well known at the IRI, that Kalimnik had links to the Russian government. Jonathan Hawker, a British national who was a public relations consultant at FTI Consulting, worked with DMI on a public relations campaign for Yanukovych. After Hawker's work for DMI ended, Kalimnik contacted Hawker about working for a Russian government entity on the public relations project that would promote in Western and Ukrainian media, Russia's position on its 2014 invasion in Crimea. Gates suspected that Kalimnik was a spy, <laughs> a view that he shared with Manafort, Hawker, and Alexander Vanderzwan, an attorney who had worked with DMI on a report for the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Redacted Investigative Technique B. Contacts during Paul Manafort's time with the Trump campaign. 1. Paul Manafort joins the campaign. Manafort served on the Trump campaign from late March to August 19, 2016. On March 29, 2016, the campaign announced that Manafort would serve as the campaign's convention manager. On May 19, 2016, Manafort was promoted to campaign chairman and chief strategist, and Gates, who had been assisting Manafort on the campaign, was appointed deputy campaign chairman. Thomas Barrick and Roger Stone both recommended Manafort to candidate Trump. <laughs> of course they did. In early 2016, at Manafort's request... Barrick suggested that tr to Trump that Manafort join the campaign to manage the Republican convention. 
Stone had worked with Manafort from approximately 1980 into the mid-1990s through various consulting and lobbying firms. Manafort met Trump in 1982 when Trump hired the Black Manafort, Stone, and Kelly lobbying firm. Over the years, Manafort saw Trump at political and social events in New York City and at Stone's wedding, and Trump requested VIP status at the 1988 and 1996 Republican conventions worked by Manafort. According to Gates, in March 2016, Manafort traveled to Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida to meet with Trump. Trump hired him at that time. Manafort agreed to work on the campaign without pay. Manafort had no meaningful income at this point in time, but resuscitating his domestic political campaign career could be financially beneficial in the future. How'd that work out for you, homie? Gates reported that Manafort intended, if Trump won the presidency, to remain outside the administration and monetize his relationship with the administration. 2. Paul Manafort's Campaign Period Contacts Immediately upon joining the campaign, Manafort directed Gates to prepare for his review separate memoranda addressed to Deripaska, Akhmatov, Serebay Lyovochkin, and Boris Kolesnikov. The last three being Ukrainian oligarchs who were senior opposition bloc officials. The memoranda described Manafort's appointment to the Trump campaign and indicated his willingness to consult on Ukrainian politics in the future. On March 30, 2016, Gates emailed the memoranda in a press release announcing Manafort's appointment to, of, appointment to Kalimnik for translation and dissemination. Manafort later followed up with Kalimnik to ensure his messages had been delivered, emailing on April 11, 2016 to ask whether Kalimnik had shown our friends the media coverage of his new role. Kalimnik replied, Absolutely. Every article. Manafort further asks, how do we use to get whole? Has OVD, Oleg Vladimitrievich Deripaska, operation seen? Kalimnik wrote back the same day, yes, I have been sending everything to Viktor Boyarkin Deripaska's deputy, who has been forwarding the coverage directly to OVD. Gates reported that Manafort said that being hired on the campaign would be good for business and increased the likelihood that Manafort would be paid the approximately $2 million he was owed for previous political consulting work in the Ukraine. Gates also explained to the office that Manafort thought his role on the campaign could help confirm that Deripaska had dropped the Pericles lawsuit and that Gates believed Manafort sent polling data to Deripaska as discussed further below, so that Deripaska would not move forward with his lawsuit against Manafort. Gates further stated that Deripaska wanted a visa to the United States, that Deripaska could believe that having Manafort in a position inside the campaign or administration might be helpful to Deripaska, and that Manafort's relationship with Trump could help Deripaska in other ways as well. Gates stated, however, that Manafort never told him anything specific about what, if anything, Manafort might be offering Deripaska. Gates also reported that Manafort instructed him in April 2016 or early May 2016 to send Kalimnik campaign internal polling data and other updates so that Kalimnik, in turn, could share with the Ukrainian oligarchs. 
Gates understood that the information would also be shared with Deripaska. Redacted. Grand Jury. Gates reported to the office that he did not know why Manafort wanted to send polling information, but Gates thought it was a way to showcase Manafort's work, and Manafort wanted to open doors to jobs after the campaign ended. Gates said that Manafort's instruction included sending internal polling data prepared for the Trump campaign by pollster Tony Fabrizio. Fabrizio had worked with Manafort for years and was brought into the campaign by Manafort. Gates stated that, in accordance with Manafort's instruction, he periodically sent Kalimnik polling data via WhatsApp. Gates then deleted the communications on a daily basis. Gates further told the office that after Manafort left the campaign in mid-August, Gates sent Kalimnik polling data less frequently, and that the data he sent was more publicly available information and less internal data. Gates' account about polling data is consistent. Redacted Grand Jury With multiple emails that Kalimnik sent to U.S. associates and press contacts between late July and mid-August of 2016. Those emails referenced internal polling, described the status of the Trump campaign and Manafort's role in it, and assessed Trump's prospects for victory. Manafort did not acknowledge instructing Gates to send Kalimnik internal data. Redacted Grand Jury the office also obtained contemporaneous emails that shed light on the purpose of the communications with Deripaska and that are consistent with Gates' account. For example, in response to a July 7, 2016 email from a Ukrainian reporter about Manafort's failed Deripaska-backed investment, Manafort asked Kalimnik whether there had been any movement on this issue with our friend. Gates stated that our friend likely referred to Deripaska, and Manafort told the office that the issue in our biggest interest, as stated below, was a solution to the Deripaska paracles issue. Kalimnik replied, I am carefully op optimistic on the question of our biggest interest. Our friend, Boyarkin, said that there is lately significantly more attention to the campaign in his boss's, Deripaska's, mind. And he will most likely and he will be most likely looking for ways to reach out to you pretty soon, understanding all the time sensitivity. I am more than sure that it will be resolved and we will get back to the original relationship with V's boss, Deripaska. Eight minutes later, Manafort replied that Kalemnik should tell Boyarkin's boss, a reference to Deripaska, that if he needs private briefings, we can accommodate. Manafort has alleged to the office that he was willing to debrief Deripaska only on public campaign matters and give an example why Trump selected Mike Pence as the vice presidential running mate. Manafort said he never gave Deripaska a briefing. Manafort noted that if Trump won, Deripaska would want to use Manafort to advance whatever interest Deripaska had in the United States and elsewhere. 3. Paul Manafort's two campaign period meetings with Konstantin Kalimnik in the United States. Manafort twice met with Kalimnik in person during the campaign, once in May and again in August 2016. The first meeting took place on May 7, 2016 in New York City. 
In the days leading to that meeting, Kalimnik had been working to gather information about the political situation in Ukraine. That included information gleaned from a trip that former party of the region's official, Yuri Boyko, had recently taken to Moscow, a trip that likely included meetings between Boyko and high-ranking Russian officials. Kalimnik then traveled to Washington, D.C. on or about May 5, 2016. While in Washington, Kalimnik had prearranged meetings with State Department employees. Late on the evening of May 6, Gates arranged for Kalimnik to take a 3 a.m. train to meet Manafort in New York for breakfast on May 7th. According to Manafort during the meeting, he and Kalimnik talked about events in Ukraine and Manafort briefed Kalimnik on the Trump campaign, expecting Kalimnik to pass the information back to individuals in Ukraine and elsewhere. Manafort stated that opposition bloc members recognized Manafort's position on the campaign was an opportunity, but Kalimnik did not ask for anything. Kalimnik spoke about a plan of Boyko to boost election participation in the eastern zone of Ukraine, which was the base for the opposition bloc. Kalimnik returned to Washington, D.C. right after the meeting with Manafort. Manafort met with Kalimnik a second time at the Grand Havana Club in New York City on the evening of August 2, 2016. The events leading to the meeting are as follows. On July 28, 2016, Kalimnik flew from, flew from Kiev to Moscow. The next day, Kalimnik wrote to Manafort requesting that, the, that they meet using coded language about a conversation he had that day. In an email with a subject line, Black Caviar, Kalimnik wrote, I met today with the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar several years ago. We spent about five hours talking about his story, and I have, spent, I have several important messages from him to you. He asked me to go and brief you on our conversation. I said I have to run it by you first, but in principle, I am prepared to do it. It has to do about the future of his country, and it is quite interesting. Manafort identified the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar as Yanukovych and explained that in 2010, he and Yanukovych had lunch to celebrate the recent presidential election. Yanukovic gave Manafort a large jar of black caviar that was worth approximately $30,000 to $40,000. Manafort's identification of Yanukovic as the guy who gave you your biggest black caviar jar is consistent with Kalimnik being in Moscow, where Yanukovic resided, when Kalimnik wrote, I met with the guy. And a December 2016 email in which Kalimnik referred to Yanukovic as BG. Redacted. Grand Jury. Manafort replied to Kalimnik's July 29th email, Tuesday, August 2nd, is best. Tuesday or Wednesday in New York City. Three days later, on July 31st, 2016, Kalimnik flew back to, Ki- back to Kiev from Moscow, and on that day, wrote to Manafort that he needed about two hours for their meeting because it's a long caviar story to tell. Kalimnik wrote that he would wrote that he would arrive to JFK on August 2nd at 7:30 p.m. and he and Manafort agreed to a late dinner that night. Documentary evidence, including flight, phone, and hotel records and the timing of text messages exchanged, confirmed the dinner took place as planned on August 2nd. As to the contents of the meeting itself, the accounts of Manafort and Gates who arrived late to the dinner differ in certain respects. 
But their versions of events, when assessed alongside available documentary evidence and what Kalimnik told business associate Sam Patton, indicate that at least three principal topics were discussed. First, Manafort and Kalimnik discussed a plan to resolve the ongoing political problems in Ukraine by creating an autonomous republic in its more industrialized eastern region of Donbass. And having Yanukovych, the Ukrainian president ousted in 2014, elected to head that republic. That plan, Manafort later acknowledged, constituted a backdoor means for Russia to control eastern Ukraine. Manafort initially said that if he had not cut off the discussion, Kalimnik would have asked Manafort if in the August 2nd meeting to convene Trump to come out in favor of the peace plan, and Yanukovych would have expected Manafort to use his connections in Europe and Ukraine to support the plan. Manafort also initially told the office that he had said to Kalimnik that the plan was crazy and that discussion ended and that he did not recall Kalimnik asking Manafort to reconsider the plan after their August 2nd meeting. Manafort said, Redacted, Grand Jury. That he reacted negatively to Yanukovych sending, years later, an urgent request when Yanukovych needed him. When confronted with an email written by Kalimnik on or about December 8, 2016, however, Manafort acknowledged Kalimnik raised the peace plan again in that email. Manafort ultimately acknowledged Kalemnik also raised the peace plan in the January and February 2017 meetings with Manafort. Redacted. Grand Jury. Second, Manafort briefed Kalemnik on the state of the Trump campaign and Manafort's plan to win the election. That briefing encompassed the campaign's messaging and its internal polling data. According to Gates, it also included discussion of battleground states, which Manafort identified as Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Minnesota. Manafort did not refer explicitly to battleground states in his telling of the August 2nd discussion. Redacted. Grand Jury. Third, according to Gates and what Kalemnik told Patton, Manafort and Kalemnik discussed two sets of financial disputes related to Manafort's previous work in the region. Those consisted of the unresolved Deripaska lawsuit and the funds that the opposition bloc owed to Manafort for his political consulting work and how Manafort might be able to obtain payment. After the meeting, Gates and Manafort both stated that they left separately from Kalimnik because they knew the media was tracking Manafort and wanted to avoid media reporting on his connections to Kalimnik. C. Post-Resignation Activities Manafort resigned from the Trump campaign in mid-August 2016, approximately two weeks after his second meeting with Kalimnik, amidst negative media reporting about his political consulting work for the pro-Russian party of regions in Ukraine. Despite this resignation, Manafort continued to offer advice to various campaign officials through the November election. Manafort told Gates that he still spoke with Kushner, Bannon, and candidate Trump, and some of those post-resignation contacts are documented in emails. For example, on October 21, 2016, Manafort sent Kushner an email and attached a strategy memorandum proposing that the campaign make the case against Clinton as the failed and corrupt champion of the establishment, and that WikiLeaks provides the Trump campaign the ability to make the case in a very credible way by using the words of Clinton, its campaign officials, and DNC members. Later, in the November 5th, 2016 email to Kushner entitled Securing the Victory, Manafort stated that he was 
really good about our prospects on Tuesday and focusing on preserving the victory and that he was concerned the Clinton campaign would respond to a loss by moving immediately to discredit the Trump victory and claim voter fraud and cyber fraud, including the claim that the Russians have hacked into the voting machines and tampered with the results. Trump was elected president on November 8th, 2016. <sighs> Manafort told the office that, in the wake of Trump's victory, he was not interested in an administration job. Manafort instead preferred to stay on the outside and monetize his campaign position to generate business given his familiarity and relationship with Trump and the income and administration. Manafort appeared to follow that plan as he traveled to the Middle East, Cuba, South Korea, Japan, and China and was paid to explain what a Trump presidency would entail. Manafort's activities in early 2017 included meetings relating to Ukraine and Russia. The first meeting, which took place in Madrid, Spain in January 2017, was with Georgi Oganov. Oganov who had previously worked at a Russian embassy in the United States, was a senior executive at a Deripaska company and was believed to report directly to Deripaska. Manafort initially denied attending the meeting. When he later acknowledged it, he claimed that the meeting had been arranged by his lawyers and concerned only the Pericles lawsuit. Other evidence, however, provides reason to doubt Manafort's statement that the sole topic of the meeting was the Pericles lawsuit. In particular, text messages to Manafort from a number associated with Kalimnik suggest that Kalimnik and Boyarkin, not Manafort's counsel, had arranged the meeting between Manafort and Oganov. Kalimnik's message states that the meetings that the meeting was supposed to be not about money or pericles, but instead about recreating the old friendship, ostensibly between Manafort and Deripaska, and talking about global politics. Manafort also replied by text that he needs to fin needs this finished before January 20th, which appears to be a reference to resolving pericles before the inauguration. On January 15, 2017, three days before his return from Madrid, Manafort emailed K.T. McFarland, who was at the time designated to be Deputy National Security Advisor and was formally appointed to that position on January 20th, 2017. Manafort's January 15th email to McFarland stated, I have some important information I want to share that I picked up on my travels over the last month. Manafort told the office that the email referred to an issue regarding Cuba, not Russia or the Ukraine, and Manafort had traveled to Cuba in the past month. Either way, McFarland, who was advised by Flynn not to respond to the Manafort inquiry, appears not to have responded to Manafort. Manafort told the office that around the time of the presidential inauguration in January, he met with Kalimnik and Ukrainian oligarch Serhii Lyovichkin at the Weston Hotel in Alexandria, Virginia. During this meeting, Kalimnik again discussed the Yanukovych peace plan that he had broached um, at the August 2nd meeting in a detailed December 8, 2016 message found in Kalimnik's DMP email account. In that December 8th email, which Manafort acknowledged having read, Kalimnik wrote, All that is required to start the process is a very minor wink or slight push from DT, an apparent reference to, Do to President-elect Donald Trump, and a decision to authorize you to be a special representative and manage this process. Kalimnik assured Manafort 
with that authority, he could start the process within 10 days. Visit Russia, Yanukovych, guarantees your reception at a very top level, and that DT could have a peace in Ukraine basically within a few months after inauguration. As noted above, Redacted Grand Jury and statements to the office, Manafort sought to qualify his engagement on and support for the plan. Redacted Grand Jury Redacted Grand Jury Redacted Grand Jury Redacted Grand Jury on February 26, 2017, Manafort met Kalimnik in Madrid, where Kalimnik had flown from Moscow. In his first two interviews with the office, Manafort denied meeting with Kalimnik on this Madrid trip, and then, after being confronted with documentary evidence that Kalimnik was in Madrid at the same time as him, recognized that he met with him in Madrid. Manafort said that Kalimnik had updated him on a criminal investigation into so-called black ledger payments to Manafort that was being conducted by Ukraine's National Anti-Corruption Bureau. Redacted Grand Jury Manafort remained in contact with Kalimnik through 2017 and into the spring of 2018. Those contacts included matters pertaining to the criminal charges brought by the office and the Ukraine peace plan. In early 2018, Manafort retained his longtime Poland firm to craft a draft poll in Ukraine, sent the pollsters a three-page primer on the plan sent by Kalimnik, and worked with Kalimnik to formulate a pol the Poland questions. The primer sent to the pollsters specifically called for the United States and President Trump to support the Autonomous Republic of Donbas with Yanukovych as Prime Minister and a series of questions in the draft poll asked for opinions on Yanukovych's role in resolving the conflict in Donbass. Donbass. The poll was not solely about Donbass, but it also sought participants' views on leaders apart from Yanukovych as they pertain to the 2019 Ukrainian presidential election. The office has not uncovered evidence that Manafort brought the Ukraine peace plan to the attention of the Trump campaign or the Trump administration. Kalimnik continued his efforts to promote the peace plan to the executive branch, the U.S. Department of State, into the summer of 2018. B. Post-election transition period contacts. Trump was elected president on November 8, 2016. Stop saying that! Beginning immediately after the election, individuals connected to the Russian government started contacting officials with the Trump campaign and transition team through multiple channels, sometimes through Russian Ambassador Kislyak, and at other times through individuals who sought reliable contacts through U.S. persons not formally tied to the campaign or transition team. The most senior levels of the Russian government encouraged these efforts. The investigation did not establish that these efforts reflected or constituted coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia in its election interference activities. 1. Immediate post-election activity As soon as news broke that Trump had been elected president, Russian government officials and prominent Russian businessmen began trying to make inroads into the new administration. They appeared not to have pre-existing contacts and struggled to connect with senior officials around the president-elect. As explained below, those efforts entailed both official contact through the Russian embassy in the United States and outreaches sanctioned at high levels of the Russian government through businesses rather than political contacts.
A. Outreach from the Russian government. At approximately 3 a.m. on election night, Trump campaign press secretary Hope Hicks received a telephone call on her personal cell phone from a person who sounded foreign but was calling from a number with the D.C. area code. Although Hicks had a hard time understanding the person, she could make out the words, Putin call. Hicks told the caller to send her an email. The following morning, on November 9, 2016, Sergei Kuznetskov, an official at the Russian Embassy to the United States, emailed Hicks from his Gmail address with the subject line, Message from Putin. Attached to the email was a message from Putin in both English and in Russian, which, which Kuznetsov asked Hicks to convey to the president-elect. In the message, Putin offered his congratulations to, to Trump for his electoral victory, stating that he looked forward to working with Trump on leading Russian-American relations out of crisis. Hicks forwarded the email to Kushner asking, Can you look into this? Don't want to get duped, but don't want to blow off Putin. Kushner stated in congressional testimony that he believed that it would be possible to verify the authenticity of the forwarded email through the Russian ambassador, whom Kushner had previously met in April 2016. Unable to recall the Russian ambassador's name, Kushner emailed Dmitry Symes of CNI, whom he had consulted previously about Russia, see Volume 1, Section 4, and asked, what is the name of the Russian ambassador? Kushner forwarded Symes' response, which identified Kislyak by name, to Hicks. After checking with Kushner to see what he had learned, Hicks conveyed Putin's letter to transition officials. Five days later, on November 14, 2016, Trump and Putin spoke by phone in the presence of transition team members, including incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. B. High-level encouragement of contacts through alternative channels. As Russian officials in the United States reached out to the president-elect and his team, a number of Russian individuals working in the private sector began their own efforts to make contact. Peter Avon, a Russian national who heads Alpha Bank, Russia's largest commercial bank, described to the office interactions with Putin during his time period that might account for the flurry of Russian activity. Avon told the office that he is one of approximately 50 wealthy Russian businessmen who regularly meet with Putin in the Kremlin. These 50 men are often referred to as oligarchs. Avon told the office that he met on a quarterly basis with Putin, including in the fourth quarter, Q4, of 2016, shortly after the U.S. presidential election. Avon said that he took these meetings seriously and understood that any suggestions or critiques that Putin made during these meetings were implicit directives and that there would be consequences for Avon if he did not follow through. As was typical, the 2016 Q4 meeting with Putin was preceded by a preparatory meeting with Putin's chief of staff, Anton Vano. According to Avon, at, this, at his Q4 2016 one-on-one -on -one with Putin, Putin raised the prospect that the United States would impose additional sanctions on Russian interests, including sanctions against Avon and or Alpha Bank. Putin suggested that Avon needed to take steps to protect himself and Alpha Bank. Even Avon also testified that Putin spoke of, dif of the difficulty faced by the Russian government in getting in touch with the incoming Trump administration. According to Avon, Putin indicated that he did not know with whom formally to speak and generally did not know the people around the president-elect. Avon redacted grand jury. 
told Putin that he would take steps to protect himself and the Alpha Bank shareholders from potential sanctions. And one of those steps would be to try to reach out to the incoming administration to establish a line of communication. Avon described Putin responding with skepticism about Avon's prospect for success. According to Avon, although Putin did not expressly direct him to reach out to the Trump transition team, Avon understood that Putin expected him to res- try to respond to the concerns that he'd raised. Avon's efforts are described in Volume 1, Section 4, B-5. Number 2. Kirill Dmitriev's Transition-Era Outreach to the Incoming Administration Avon's description of his interactions with Putin is consistent with the behavior of Kirill Dmitriev, Dmitriev, a Russian national who heads Russia's sovereign wealth fund and is closely connected to Putin. Dmitriev undertook efforts to meet members of the incoming Trump administration in the months after the election. Dmitriev asked a close business associate who worked for the United Arab Emirates, UAE, Royal Court, George Nader, to introduce him to Trump Trump transition officials, and Nader eventually arranged a meeting in the Sakhiles between Dmitriev and Eric Prince, a Trump campaign supporter and an associate of Steve Bannon. In addition, the UAE National Security Advisor introduced Dmitriev to a hedge fund manager and friend of Jared Kushner, Rick Gerson, in late November 2016. In December 2016 and January 2017, Dmitriev and Gerson worked on a proposal for reconciliation between the United States and Russia, which Dmitriev worked on a, implied that he cleared through Putin. Gerson provided that proposal to Kushner before the inauguration, and Kushner later gave copies to Bannon and Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. A. Background Dmitriev is a Russian national who was appointed CEO of Russia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Russian Direct Investment Fund, RDIF, when it was founded in 2011. Dmitriev reported directly to Putin and frequently referred to Putin as his boss. RDIF has co-invested in various projects with UAE Sovereign Wealth Funds. Dmitriev regularly interacted with Nader, a senior advisor to UAE Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. Crown Prince Muhammad, in connection with RDIF's dealings with the UAE. Putin wanted Dmitriev to be in charge of both financial and political relationship with Russia and the Gulf states, in part because Dmitriev had been educated in the West and spoke English fluently. Nader considered Dmitriev to be Putin's interlocutor in the Gulf region and would relay Dmitriev's views directly to the Crown Prince Muhammad. Nader developed contacts with both U.S. presidential campaigns during the 2016 election and kept Dmitriev abreast of his efforts to do so. According to Nader, Dmitriev said that his and the government of Russia's preference was for candidate Trump to win and asked Nader to assist him in meeting members of the Trump campaign. Redacted Grand Jury Nader did not introduce Dmitriev to anyone associated with the Trump campaign before the election. Redacted Grand Jury 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 
Eric Prince is a businessman who had relationships with various individuals associated with the Trump campaign, including Steve Bannon, Donald Trump Jr., and Roger Stone. Prince did not have a formal role in the campaign, although he offered to host a fundraiser for Trump and sent unsolicited policy papers on issues such as foreign policy, trade, and Russian election interference to Bannon. After the election, Prince frequently visited transition offices at Trump Tower, primarily to meet with Bannon, but on occasion to meet with Michael Flynn and others. Prince and Bannon would discuss inter alia foreign policy issues and Prince's recommendation regarding who should be appointed to fill key national security positions. Although Prince was not formally affiliated with the transition, Nader redacted grand jury received assurances redacted grand jury that the incoming administration considered Prince a trusted associate. B. Kirill Dmitriev's post-election contacts with the incoming administration. Soon after midnight on election night, Dmitriev messaged Redacted Investigative Technique who was traveling to New York to attend the 2016 World Chess Championship. Redacted Investigative Technique Dmitry Peskov, the Russian Federation's press secretary, who was also attending the World Chess Championship. Redacted Investigative Technique Redacted Investigative Technique Redacted Investigative Technique At approximately 2.40 a.m. on November 9, 2016, news reports stated that candidate Clinton had called President-elect Trump to concede at Redacted Investigative Technique Redacted Investigative Technique Who wrote to Dmitriev, Putin has won. Later that morning, Dmitriev contacted Nader, who was in New York, to request a meeting with the key people in the incoming administration as soon as possible in light of the great results. He asked Nader to convey to the incoming administration that we want to start rebuilding the relationship in whatever is a comfortable pace for them. We understand all of the sensitivities and are not in a rush. Dmitriev and Nader had previously discussed Nader introducing them to the contacts Nader had made within the Trump campaign. Dmitriev also told Nader that he would ask Putin for permission to travel to the United States, where he would be able to speak to media outlets about the positive impact of Trump's election and the need for reconciliation between the United States and Russia. Later that day, Dmitriev flew to New York, where Peskov was separately traveling to it attend the chess tournament. Dmitriev invited Nader to the opening of the tournament and noted that if there was a chance to see anyone key from the Trump camp, he would love to start building for the future. Dmitriev also asked Nader to invite Kushner to the event so that he, Dmitriev, could meet him. Nader did not pass along Dmitriev's invitation to anyone connected with the incoming administration. Although one World Chess Federation official recalled hearing from an attendee that President-elect Trump had stopped by the tournament, the investigation did not establish that Trump nor any campaign or transition team official attended the event. And the president's written answers denied that he had. Nader stated that Dmitriev continued to press him to set up a meeting with transition officials and was particularly focused on Kushner and Trump Jr., 
Dmitriev told Nader that Putin would be a very grateful to Nader and that a meeting would make history. Redacted, Grand Jury. Redacted, Grand Jury. According to Nader, Dmitriev was very anxious to get connected with the incoming administration and told Nader that he would try other routes to do so besides Nader himself. Nader did not ultimately introduce Dmitriev to anyone associated with the incoming administration during Dmitriev's post-election trip to New York. In early December 2016, Dmitriev again broached the topic of meeting incoming administration officials with Nader in January or February. Dmitriev sent Nader a list of publicly available quotes of Dmitriev speaking positively about Donald Trump in case they were helpful. C. Eric Prince and Kirill Dmitriev meet in the Seychelles. 1. George Nader and Eric Prince arrange Seychelles meetings with Dmitriev. Nader traveled to New York in early January 2017 and had lunchtime and dinner meetings with Eric Prince on January 3, 2017. Nader and Prince discussed Dmitriev. Nader informed Prince that the Russians were looking to build a link with the incoming Trump administration. Redacted Grand Jury He told Prince and Dmitriev had been pushing Nader to introduce him to someone from the incoming administration. Redacted Grand Jury Nader suggested, in light of Prince's relationship with transition team officials, that Prince and Dmitriev meet to discuss issues of mutual concern. Redacted Grand Jury Prince told Nader that he needed to think further about it and to check with transition team officials. After his dinner with Prince, Nader sent Prince a leak to Wikipedia entry about Dmitriev and sent Dmitriev a message stating that he had just met with some of the key people within the family and inner circle, a reference to Prince, and that he had spoken at length and positively about Dmitriev. Nader told Dmitriev that the people he had met had asked for Dmitriev's bio, and Dmitriev replied that he would update and send it. Nader later re received from Dmitriev two files concerning Dmitriev. One was a two-page bio, and the other was a list of Dmitriev's positive quotes about Donald Trump. The next morning, Nader forwarded the message and attachments Dmitriev had sent him to Prince. Nader wrote to Prince that these documents were the versions to be used with some additional details for him, with them referring to members of the incoming administration. Prince opened the attachments at Trump Tower within an hour of receiving them. Prince stated that while he was at Trump Tower that day, he spoke with Kellyanne Conway, Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin, and others while waiting to see Bannon. Cell site location data for Prince's mobile phone indicates that Prince remained at Trump Tower for approximately three hours. Prince said that he could not recall whether during these three hours he met with Bannon and discussed Dmitriev with him. Redacted Grand Jury Prince booked a ticket to the Seychelles on January 7, 2017. The following day, Nader wrote to Dmitriev that he had a pleasant surprise for him, namely that he had arranged for Dmitriev to meet with a special guest from the new team, referring to Prince. 
Nader asked Dmitriev if he could come to the Seychelles for the meeting on January 12, 2017, and Dmitriev agreed. The following day, Dmitriev sought assurance from Nader that the Seychelles meeting would be worthwhile. Redacted. Grand Jury. Dmitriev was not enthusiastic about the idea of meeting with Prince and that Nader assured him that Prince wielded influence with the incoming administration. Nader wrote Dmitriev, This guy, Prince, is designated by Steve Bannon to meet you. I know him, and he's very, very well connected and trusted by the new team. His sister is now a minister of education. According to Nader, Prince had led him to believe that Bannon was aware of Prince's upcoming meetings with Dmitriev, and Prince acknowledged that it was fair for Nader to think that Prince would pass information on to transition team. Bannon, however, told the office that Prince did not tell him in advance about his meeting with Dmitriev. Side note, Prince is Betsy DeVos's brother, in case you didn't pick up on that shit. 2. The Seychelles Meetings Dmitriev arrived with his wife in the Seychelles on January 11, 2017, and checked into the Four Seasons Resort where Crown Prince Mohammed and Nader were staying. Prince arrived that same day. Prince and Dmitriev met for the first time that afternoon in Nader's villa, with Nader present. The initial meeting lasted approximately 30 to 45 minutes. Redacted Grand Jury Prince described the eight years of Obama administration in negative terms and stated that he was looking forward to a new era of cooperation and conflict resolution. According to Prince, he told Dmitriev that Bannon was effective, if not conventional, and that Prince provided policy papers to Bannon. Redacted Grand Jury 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 The topic of Russian interference in the 2016 election did not come up. Redacted Grand Jury Prince added that he would inform Bannon about his meeting with Dmitriev and that if there was interest in continuing the discussion, Bannon or someone else on the transition team would do so. Redacted Grand Jury Afterwards, Prince returned to his room where he learned that Russian aircraft carrier had sailed to Libya, which led him to call Nader to ask him to set up another meeting with Dmitriev. According to Nader, Prince called and said that he had checked with his associates back home and needed to convey to Dmitriev that Libya, Libya was off the table. Nader wrote to Dmitriev that Prince had received an urgent message that he needs to convey to you immediately and arranged for himself, Dmitriev, and Prince to meet at a restaurant on the Four Seasons property. At the second meeting, Prince told Dmitriev that the United States could not accept any Russian involvement in Libya because it would make the situation there much worse. Redacted Grand Jury Redacted Grand Jury After the brief second meeting concluded, Nader and Dmitriev discussed what had transpired. Dmitriev told Nader that he was disappointed in his meetings with Prince for two reasons. First, he believed that the Russians needed to be communicating with someone who had more authority within the incoming administration than Prince had. 
Second, he had hoped to have a discussion of greater substance, such as outlining a strategic roadmap for both countries to follow. Dmitriev told Nader that... Redacted. Grand Jury. Prince's comments... Redacted. Grand Jury. Were insulting. Redacted. Grand Jury. Hours after the second meeting, Prince sent two text messages to Bannon from the Seychelles. As described further below, investigators were unable to obtain the content of these or other messages between Prince and Bannon, and the investigation also did not identify evidence of any further communication between Prince and Dmitriev after their meetings in the Seychelles. 3. Eric Prince's Meeting with Steve Bannon After the Seychelles Trip After the Seychelles meetings, Prince told Nader that he would inform Bannon about his discussion with Dmitriev and would convey that someone within the Russian power structure was interested in seeking better relations with the incoming administration. On January 12, 2017, Prince contacted Bannon's personal assistants to set up a meeting for the following week. Several days later, Prince messaged her again about Bannon's schedule. Prince said that he met at Bannon at Bannon's home after returning to the United States in mid-January and briefed him about several topics, including his meeting with Dmitriev. Prince told the office that he explained to Bannon that Dmitriev was the head of the Russian Sovereign Wealth Fund and was interested in improving relations between the United States and Russia. Prince had on his cell phone a screenshot of Dmitriev's Wikipedia page dated January 16, 2017. And Prince told the office that he likely showed that image to Bannon. Prince also believed he provided Bannon with Dmitriev's contact information. According to Prince, Bannon instructed Prince not to follow up with Dmitriev and Prince had the impression that the issue was not a priority for Bannon. Prince related that Bannon did not appear angry, just relatively uninterested. Bannon, by contrast, told the office that he never discussed with Prince anything regarding Dmitriev, RDIF, or any meetings with Russian individuals or people associated with Putin. Bannon also stated that had Prince mentioned such a meeting, Bannon would have remembered it, and Bannon would have objected to such a meeting having taken place. The conflicting accounts provided by Bannon and Prince could not be independently clarified by reviewing their communications, because neither one of them was able to produce any of the messages that they exchanged in the time period surrounding the Seychelles meetings. Prince's phone contained no text messages prior to March 2017, though provider records indicate that he and Bannon exchanged dozens of messages. Prince denied deleting any messages, but claimed he did not know why there were no messages on his device before March of 2017. Bannon's device similarly contained no messages in the relevant time period, and Bannon also stated that he did not know why messages did not appear on his device. Bannon told the office that during both of the months before and after the Seychelles meetings, he regularly used his personal BlackBerry and personal email for work-related communications, including those with Prince, and he took no steps to preserve these work communications. D. Kirill Dmitriev's post-election contact with Rich Gerson regarding U.S.-Russia relations. Dmitriev's contacts during the transition period were not limited to those facilitated by Nader.
In approximately late November 2016, the UAE National Security Advisor introduced Dmitriev to Rick Gerson, a friend of Jared Kushner who runs a hedge fund in New York. Gerson stated that he had no formal role in the transition and had no involvement in the Trump campaign other than occasional casual discussions about the campaign with Kushner. After the election, Gerson assisted the transition by arranging meetings for for transition officials with former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and the UAE delegation led by Crown Prince Mohammed. When Dmitriev and Gerson met, they principally discussed potential joint ventures between Gerson's hedge fund and RDIF. Dmitriev was interested in improved economic cooperation between the United States and Russia and asked Gerson who he should meet with in the incoming administration who would be helpful towards this goal. Gerson replied that he would try to figure out the best way to arrange appropriate introductions, but noted that confidentiality would be required because of the sensitivity of holding such meetings before the new administration took power and before cabinet nominees had been confirmed by the Senate. Gerson said that he would ask Kushner and Michael Flynn who the key person or people were on the topics of reconciliation with Russia, joint secretary, joint security concerns, and economic matters. Dmitriev told Gerson that he had been tasked by Putin to develop and execute a reconciliation plan between the United States and Russia. He noted in a text message to Gerson that if Russia was approached with respect and willingness to understand our position, that we can have a mate, we can have major breakthroughs quickly. Gerson and Dmitry have exchanged ideas in December 2016 about what such a reconciliation plan would include. Gerson told the office that the transition team had not asked him to engage in these discussions with Dmitriev and that he did so on his own initiative as a private citizen. On January 9, 2017, the same day he asked Nader whether meeting Prince would be worthwhile, Dmitriev sent his biography to Gerson and asked him if he could share it with Jared, or somebody very senior in the team, so that they know that we are focused from our side on improving the relationship and my boss asked me to play a key role in that. Dmitriev also asked Gerson if he knew Prince and if Prince was somebody important or worth spending time with. After his trip to the Seychelles, Dmitriev told Gerson that, ba- that Bannon had asked Prince to meet with Dmitriev and that the two had had a positive meeting. On January 16, 2017, Dmitriev consolidated the ideas for U.S.-Russia con- reconciliation that he and Gerson had been discussing into a two-page document that listed five main points. One, jointly fighting terrorism. Two, jointly engaging in anti-weapons of mass destruction efforts. 3. Developing win-win economic and investment initiatives. 4. Maintaining an honest, open, and continual dialogue regarding issues of disagreement. and 5. Ensuring proper communication and trust by key people from each country. On January 18, 2017, Gerson gave a copy of the document to Kushner. Kushner had not heard of Dmitriev at that time. Gerson explained that Dmitriev was the head of the RDIF, and Gerson may have alluded to Dmitriev's being well-connected. Kushner placed the document in a file and said that he'd get to it, get it to the right people. Kushner ultimately gave one copy of the document to Bannon and another to Rex Tillerson. According to Kushner, neither of them followed up with Kushner about it. 
On January 19, 2017, Dmitriev sent Nader a copy of the two-page document telling him that it was a view from our side that I discussed in my meeting on the islands and with you and with your friends. Please share them. We believe that this is a good foundation to start from. Gerson informed Dmitriev that he had been given the document to Kushner soon after delivering it. On January 26, 2017, Dmitriev wrote to Gerson that his boss, an apparent reference to Putin, was asking if there had been any feedback on the proposal. Dmitriev said, We do not want to rush things and move at a, at a comfortable speed. At the same time, my boss asked me to try to have the key U.S. meetings in the next two weeks if possible. He informed Gerson that Putin and President Trump would speak by phone that Saturday and noted that the information was very confidential. That same day, Dmitriev wrote to Nader and said that he had seen his boss again yesterday, who had emphasized that this is a great priority for us and that we need to build this communication channel to avoid bureaucracy. On January 28, 2017, Dmitriev texted Nader that he wanted to see if I can confirm to my boss that your friends may use some of the ideas from, page, from the two-pager I sent you in the telephone call that will happen at 12 Eastern. An apparent reference to the call scheduled between President Trump and Putin. Nader replied, Definitely paper was so s submitted to team by Rick and me. They took it seriously. After, a, after the call between President Trump and Putin occurred, Dmitriev wrote to Nader that the call went very well. My boss wants me to continue making some public statements that us, Russia, cooperation is good and important. Gerson also wrote to Dmitriev to say that the call had gone well and that Dmitriev replied that the document they had drafted together played an important role. Gerson and Dmitriev appeared to stop communicating with one another in approximately March 2017, when the investment deal that they had been working on together showed no signs of progressing. 3. Ambassador Kislyak's meeting with Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn in Trump Tower following the election. On November 16, 2016, Catherine Vargas, an executive assistant to Kushner, received a request for a meeting with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. That same day, Vargas sent Kushner an email with the subject, MISSED CALL! It's all caps. She's a, she's a caps lock abuser. Russian ambassador to the U.S., Sergei Ivanovich Kislyak. The text of the email read, Re, standing up at a time to meet with you on 12-1. LMK, how to proceed. Kushner responded in relevant part, I think I do this one. Confirmed with Dmitry Symes of CNI that this is the right guy. After reaching out to a colleague of Symes at CNI, Vargas reported back to Kushner that Kislyak was the best go-to guy for routine matters in the U.S., while Yuri Ushnikov, a Russian foreign policy advisor, was the contact for more direct, substantial matters. Bob Forsman, the UBS investment bank executive who had previously tried to transmit to candidate Trump an inv invitation to speak at an economic forum in Russia, see Volume 1, Section 4, may have provided similar information to the transition team. According to Forsman, at the end of the early December 2016 meeting with incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and his designated deputy, K.T. McFarlane, the new 
in New York, Flynn asked Foreman for his thoughts of Kislyak. Foreman had not met Kislyak, but told Flynn that while Kislyak was an important person, Kislyak did not have a direct line to Putin. Forsman subsequently traveled to Moscow, inquired of a source he believed to be close to Putin, and heard back from that source that Ushakov would be the official channel for the incoming U.S. National Security Advisor. Forsman acknowledged that Flynn had not asked him to undertake that inquiry in Russia, but told the office that he nonetheless felt obligated to report the information back to Flynn, and that he worked to get a face-to-face meeting with Flynn in January 2017 so that he could do so. Email correspondence suggests that the meeting ultimately went forward, but Flynn has no recollection of it or of the earlier December meeting. The investigation did not identify evidence of Flynn or Kushner meeting with Ushakov after being given his name. In the meantime, although he had already informed the impression that Kislyak was not necessarily the right point of contact, Kushner went forward with the meeting that Kislyak had requested on November 16th. It took place at Trump Tower on November 30th, 2016. At Kushner's invitation, Flynn also attended. Bannon was invited but didn't attend. During the meeting, which lasted approximately 30 minutes, Kushner expressed a desire on the part of the incoming administration to start afresh with U.S.-Russian relations. Kushner also asked if Kislyak to identify the best person, whether Kislyak or someone else, with whom to direct future discussions, someone who had contact with Putin and the ability to speak to him. The three men also discussed U.S. policy towards Syria, and Kislyak floated the idea of having Russian generals brief the transition team on the topic using a secure communications line. After Flynn explained that there were no secure line in the transition team offices, Kushner asked Kislyak if they could communicate using secure facilities at the Russian embassy. Kislyak quickly rejected that idea. Number four. Jared Kushner's meeting with Sergei Gorkov. On December 6, 2016, the Russian embassy reached out to Kushner's assistant to set up a second meeting between Kislyak and Kushner. Kushner declined several proposed meeting dates, but Kushner's assistant indicated that Kislyak was very insistent upon about securing a second meeting. Kushner told the office that he did not want to take another meeting because he had already decided Kislyak was not the right channel for him to communicate with Russia. So he arranged to have one of his assistants, Avi Berkowitz, to meet with Kislyak instead. Although embassy official Sir Sergei Kuznikov, Kuznetsov wrote to Berkowitz that Kislyak thought it important to continue the conversation with Mr. Kushner in person. Kislyak nonetheless agreed to meet instead with Berkowitz, once it became apparent that Kushner was unlikely to take a meeting. Berkowitz met with Kislyak on December 12, 2016 at Trump Tower. The meeting lasted only a few minutes, during which Kislyak indicated that he wanted Kushner to meet someone who had a direct line to Putin, Sergei Gorkov, the head of the Russian government-owned bank, V-E-B. Kushner agreed to meet with Gorkov. The one-on-one meeting took place the next day, December 13, 2016, at the Colony Capitol building in Manhattan, where Kushner had previously scheduled meetings. 
VEB was and is the subject of Department of Treasury economic sanctions imposed in response to Russia's annexation of Crimea. Kushner did not, however, recall any discussion during this meeting with Gorkov about the sanctions against VEB or sanctions more generally. Kushner stated in an interview that he did not engage in any preparation for the meeting and that no one on the transition team even did a Google search for Gorkov's name. (laughs) After the start of the meeting, Gorkov presented Kushner with two gifts, a painting and a bag of soil from the town of Belarus where Kushner's family originated. The accounts from Kushner and Gorkov differ as to whether the meeting was diplomatic or business in nature. Kushner told the Oftis that the meeting was diplomatic, and Gorkov, expressing disappointment with the U.S.-Russia relations under President Obama and hopes for improved relations with the incoming administration. According to Kushner, although Gorkov told Kushner a little bit about his bank and made some statements about the Russian economy, the two did not discuss Kushner's companies or private business dealings of any kind. At the time of the meeting, Kushner's companies had a debt obligation coming due on the building it owed, owned at 666 5th Avenue, and there had been public reporting both about efforts to secure lending on the property and possible conflicts of interest for Kushner arising out of the company's borrowing from foreign lenders. In contrast, in a 2017 public statement, VEB suggested Gorkov met with Kushner in Kushner's capacity as CEO of Kushner Companies for the purpose of discussing business rather than as a part of a diplomatic effort. In particular, VEB characterized Gorkov's meeting with Kushner as part of a series of roadshow meetings with representatives of major U.S. banks and business circles, which included negotiations and discussions for the most promising business lines and sectors. Forsman, the investment bank executive mentioned in Volume 1, Section 4, told the office that he met with Gorkov and VEB Deputy Chairman Nikolay Sashamsky in Moscow just before Gorkov met for New- left for New York to meet Kushner. According to Forsman, Gorkov and Sashamsky told him that they were traveling to New York to discuss post-election issues with the U.S. financial institutions, that their trip was sanctioned by Putin, and that they would be reporting back to Putin upon their return. The investigation did not resolve the apparent conflict in the accounts of Kushner and Gorkov or determine whether the meeting was diplomatic in nature, as Kushner stated. Focused on business, as VEB's public statement indicated, or whether it involved some combination of those matters or other matters. Regardless, the investigation did not identify evidence that Kushner and Gorkov Gorkov engaged in any substantive follow-up after the meeting. Rather, a few days after the meeting, Gorkov's assistant texted Kushner's assistant, Hi, please inform your side that the information about the meeting had a very positive response. Over the following weeks, the two assistants exchanged a handful of additional cordial texts. On February 8, 2017, Gorkov's assistant texted Kushner's assistant, Berkowitz, and to try to set up another meeting and followed up by a text at least twice in the days that followed. According to Berkowitz, he did not respond to the meeting request in light of the press coverage regarding the Russia investigation and did not tell Kushner about the meeting request. Number five. Peter Avon's outreach efforts into the transition team. 
In December 2016, weeks after the one-on-one meeting with Putin described in Volume 1, Section 4, Peter Avon attended what he described as a separate all-hands oligarch meeting between Putin and Russia's most prominent businessmen. As in Avon's one-on-one meeting, the main topic of discussion at the oligarchs' meeting in December 2016 was the prospect of forthcoming U.S. economic sanctions. After the December 2016 all-hands meeting, Avon tried to establish a connection to the Trump team. Avon instructed Richard Burt to make contact with the incoming Trump administration. Burt was on the board of directors for Letter 1, L1, another company headed by Avon, and had done work for Alpha Bank. Burt had previously served as U.S. Ambassador to Germany and Assistant Secretary of State for European and Canadian Affairs. And one of his primary roles with Alpha Bank and L1 was to facilitate introductions to business contacts in the United States and other Western countries. While at an L1 board meeting held in Luxembourg in late December 2016, Avon pulled Bert aside and told him that he had spoken to someone high in the Russian government who expressed interest in establishing a communications channel between the Kremlin and the Trump transition team. Avon asked Bert's help in contacting members of the transition team. Although Bert had been responsible for helping Avon to build connections in the past, Bert viewed Avon's request as unusual and outside the normal realm of his dealings with him. Bert, who is member of the board of CNI, decided to approach CNI President Dimitri Symes for help facilitating Avon's request, recalling that Symes had some relationship with Kushner. At the time, Symes was lobbying the Trump transition team on Burt's behalf to appoint Burt U.S. ambassador to Russia. Burt contacted Symes by telephone and asked if he could arrange a meeting with Kushner to discuss setting up a high-level communications channel between Putin and the incoming administration. Symes told the office that he declined and stated to Burt that setting up such a channel was not a good idea in light of the media attention surrounding Russian influences in the U.S. presidential election. According to Symes, he understood that Burt was seeking a secret channel, and Symes did not want CNI to be seen as an intermediary between the Russian government and the incoming administration. Based on what Symes had read in the media, he stated that he had already had concerns that Trump's business connections could be exploited by Russia, and Symes said that he did not want CNI to have any involvement or apparent involvement in facilitating any connections. In an email dated December 22, 2016, Burt recounted for Avon his connection, his conversation with Symes. Through a trusted third party, I have reached out to a very influential person I mentioned in Luxembourg concerning Project A. There is interest in, in an understanding for the need to establish such a channel. But the individual emphasized that at this moment, with such an intense interest in the Congress and the media over the question of cyber hacking, who and who ordered what, Project A is too explosive to discuss. The individual agreed to discuss it again after the new year. I trust the individual's instincts on this. If it is unclear, or if you would like to discuss, please don't hesitate to call. According to Bert, the very official person referenced in this email was Symes, and the reference was a trusted third party, was a fabrication, as no such third party existed. 
Project A was a term that Bert created for Avon's effort to establish a communications channel between Russia and the Trump team, which he used in light of the sensitivity surrounding what Avon was requesting, especially in light of the recent attention to Russia's influence in the U.S. presidential election. According to Burt, his report that there was interest in a communications channel reflected Sainz's views, not necessarily those of the transition team, and in any event, Burt acknowledged that he had added some hype to that sentence to make it sound like there was more interest from the transition team than what might have actually existed. Avon replied to Burt's email on the same day saying, thank you, all clear. According to Avon, this statement indicated that he did not want the outreach to continue. Burt spoke to Avon sometime thereafter about the attempt to make contact with the transition team, explained to Avon that the current environment made it impossible. Redacted. Grand Jury. Burt did not recall discussing Avon's request with Symes again, nor did he recall speaking to anyone else about the project. In the first quarter of 2017, Avon met again with Putin and with other Russian officials. At that meeting, Putin asked about Avon's attempt to build relations with the Trump administration, and Avon recounted his lack of success. Redacted. Grand Jury. Putin continued to inquire about Avon's efforts to connect to the Trump administration in several subsequent quarterly meetings. Avon also told Putin's chief of staff that he had been subpoenaed by the FBI. As part of that conversation, he reported that he had been asked by the FBI about whether he had worked to create a back channel between the Russian government and the Trump administration. According to Avon, the officials showed no emotion in response to this report and did not appear to care. Number six, Carter Page contact with Deputy Prime Minister Arkady Dvorkovic. In December 2016, more than two months after he was removed from the Trump campaign, former campaign foreign policy advisor Carter Page again assisted, visited Moscow in an attempt to pursue business opportunities. Redacted Grand Jury According to Konstantin Kalimnik, Paul Manafort's associate, Page also gave some individuals in Russia the impression that he had maintained his connections to President-elect Trump. In a December 8, 2016 email intended for Manafort, Kalimnik wrote, Carter Page is in Moscow today, sending messages he is authorized to talk to Russia on behalf of DT on a range of issues of mutual interest, including Ukraine. On December 9, 2016, Page went to dinner with NES employees Shlomo Weber and Andrej Krikovic. Weber, Weber had contacted Dvorkovic, to let him know that Page was in town and to invite him to stop by the dinner if he wished to do so. And Dvorkovich came to the restaurant for a few minutes to meet with Page. Dvorkovich congratulated Page on Trump's election and, impressed, and expressed interest in starting a dialogue between the United States and Russia. Dvorkovich asked Page if he could facilitate connecting Dvorkovich with individuals involved in the transition to begin a discussion of future cooperation. Redacted Grand Jury Redacted Grand Jury Redacted Grand Jury Dvorkovich separately discussed working together in the future by forming an academic partnership. Redacted Grand Jury. Redacted Grand Jury. 
Number seven, contacts with and through Michael Flynn. Incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was the transition team's primary conduit for communication with the Russian ambassador and dealt with Russia on two sensitive matters during the transition period, a United Nations Security Council vote and the Russian government's reaction to the United States' imposition of sanctions for Russian interference in the 2016 election. Despite Kushner's conclusion that Kislyak did not wield influence inside the Russian government, the transition team turned to Flynn's relationship with Kislyak on both issues. As to the sanctions, Flynn spoke by phone to K.T. McFarland, and income, his incoming deputy, to prepare for his call to Kislyak. McFarlane was with the president-elect and other senior members of the transition team at Mar-a-Lago at the time. Although transition officials at Mar-a-Lago had some concern about possible Russian reactions to the sanctions, the investigation did not identify evidence that the president-elect asked Flynn to make any request to Kislyak. Flynn asked Kislyak not to escalate the situation in response to U.S. sanctions imposed on December 29, 2016, and Kislyak later reported to Flynn that Russia accepted that request. A. United Nations Vote on Israeli Settlements On December 21, 2016, Egypt submitted a resolution to the United Nations Security Council calling Israel to cease settlement activities in Palestinian territory. The Security Council, which includes Russia, was scheduled to vote on the resolution the following day. There was speculation in the media that the Obama administration would not oppose the resolution. According to Flynn, the transition team regarded the vote as a significant issue and wanted to support Israel by opposing the resolution. On December 22, 2016, multiple members of the transition team, as well as President-elect Trump, communicated with foreign government officials to determine their views on the resolution and to rally support to delay the vote or defeat the resolution. Kushner led the effort for the transition team. Flynn was responsible for the Russian government. Minutes after the early morning phone call with Kushner on December 22, Flynn called Kislyak. According to Flynn, he informed Kislyak about the vote and the transition team's opposition to the resolution and requested that Russia's vote against or delay the resolution. Later that day, President-elect Trump spoke with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi about the vote. Ultimately, Egypt postponed the vote. On December 23, 2016, Malaysia, New Zealand, Senegal, and Venezuela resubmitted the resolution. Throughout the day, members of the transition team continued to talk with foreign policy leaders about the resolution, with Flynn continuing to lead the outreach with the Russian government through Kislyak. When Flynn, spoke, when Flynn again spoke with Kislyak, Kislyak informed Flynn that if the resolution came to a vote, Russia would not vote against it. The resolution later passed 14 to 0, and the United States abstained. U.S. Sanctions Against Russia B. Flynn was also the transition team member who spoke with the Russian government when the Obama administration imposed sanctions and other measures against Russia in response to Russia's interference with the 2016 presidential election. On December 28, 2016, then-President Obama signed Executive Order 13757, which took effect at 12.01 the following day and imposed sanctions on non-Russian individuals and entities. On December 29, 2016, the Obama administration also expelled 35 Russian government officials and closed two Russian government-owned compounds in the United States. 
During the rollout of the sanctions, President-elect Trump and multiple transition team senior officials, including McFarland, Steve Bannon, and Rents Priebus, were staying at the Mar-a-Lago Club in Palm Beach, Florida. Flynn was on vacation in the Dominican Republic, but was in daily contact with McFarland. The transition team and President-elect Trump were concerned that these sanctions would harm the United States' relationship with Russia. Although the details and timing of sanctions were unknown on December 28, 2016, the media began reporting that retaliatory measures from the Obama administration against Russia were forthcoming. When asked about imposing sanctions, sanctions on Russia for its alleged interference in the 2016 presidential election, President-elect Trump told the media, I think we ought to get on with our lives. <laughs> Russia initiated the outreach to the transition team. On the evening of December 28, 2016, Kislyak texted Flynn, Can you kindly call me back at your convenience? Flynn did not respond to the text message that evening. Someone from Russian embassy called Flynn the next morning at 12.38 a.m., but they did not talk. The sanctions were announced publicly on December 29, 2016. At 1.53 p.m. that day, McFarland began exchanging emails with multiple transition team members and advisors about the impact of sanctions would have on the incoming administration. At 12.07 p.m., a transition team member texted Flynn a link to a New York Times article about the sanctions. At 2.29 p.m., McFarlane called Flynn, but they didn't talk. Shortly after, McFarlane and Bannon discussed the sanctions. According to McFarlane, Bannon remarked that the sanctions would hurt their ability to have good relations with Russia and that Russian escalation would make things more difficult. McFarlane believed that she told Bannon that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislyak later that night. McFarlane also believed that she may have discussed the sanctions with Priebus, and, likewise, told him that Flynn was scheduled to talk to Kislyak that night. At 3.14 p.m., Flynn texted the transition team member, who was assisting McFarlane, Time for a call? The transition team member responded that McFarlane was on the phone with Tom Bossert, a transition team senior official, to which Flynn responded, Tit for tat with Russia not good. Russia AMBO reaching out to me today. Flynn recalled that he chose not to communicate with Kislyak about the sanctions until he had heard from the team at Mar-a-Lago. He first spoke with Michael Leiden, a transition team member who advised the foreign policy and national security matters, for 20 minutes. Flynn then spoke to McFarland for almost 20 minutes to discuss what, if anything, to communicate to Kislyak about the sanctions. On that call, McFarland and Flynn discussed the sanctions, including their potential impact on the incoming Trump administration's foreign policy goals. McFarlane and Flynn also discussed that transition team members in Mar-a-Lago did not want Russia to escalate the situation. They both understood that Flynn would relay the message to Kislyak in hopes of making sure that the situation would not get out of hand. Immediately after speaking with McFarlane, Flynn called and spoke with Kislyak. Flynn discussed multiple topics with Kislyak, including the sanctions, scheduling a video teleconference between President-elect Trump and Putin, an upcoming terrorism conference, and Russia's views about the Middle East. With respect to the sanctions, Flynn requested that Russia not escalate the situation, not get into a tit-for-tat, and only respond, for a for, only respond to the sanctions in a reciprocal manner. Multiple transition team members were aware that Flynn was speaking with Kislyak that day. 
In addition to her conversations with Bannon and Rance Priebus, at 4.43 p.m., McFarlane sent an email to transition team members about sanctions informing the group that General Flynn is talking to Russian ambassador this evening. Less than an hour after, McFarlane briefed President-elect Trump, Bannon, Priebus, Sean Spicer, and other transition team members were present. During the briefing, President-elect Trump asked McFarlane if the Russians did it, meaning the intrusions intended to influence the presidential election. McFarlane said yes, and President-elect Trump expressed doubt that it was the Russians. Piece of shit. McFarlane also discussed potential Russian responses to the sanctions, and said Russia responses would be an indicator of what the Russians wanted going forward. President-elect Trump opined that the sanctions provided him with leverage to use with the Russians. McFarlane recalled that at the end of the meeting, someone may have mentioned to President Trump that Flynn was speaking to the Russian ambassador that evening. After the briefing, Flynn and McFarlane spoke over the phone. Flynn reported on the substance of his call with Kislyak, including their discussion of the sanctions. According to McFarlane, Flynn mentioned that the Russian response to the sanctions was not going to be escalatory because they wanted a good relationship with the incoming administration. McFarlane also gave Flynn a summary of a recent briefing with President-elect Trump. The next day, December 30, 2016, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov remarked that Russia would respond in kind to the sanctions. Putin superseded that comment two hours later, releasing a statement that Russia would not take retaliatory measures in response to the sanctions at this time. Hours later, President Trump tweeted, Great move on the delay by V. Putin. Shortly thereafter, Flynn sent a text message to McFarland summarizing his call with Kislyak from the day before, which she emailed to Kushner, Bannon, Priebus, and other transition team members. The text message and email did not include sanctions as one of the topics discussed with Kislyak. Flynn told the office that he did not document his discussion of sanctions because it could be perceived as getting in the way of the Obama administration's foreign policy. On December 31, 2016, Kislyak called Flynn and told him the request had been received at the highest levels and that Russia had chosen not to retaliate to the sanctions in response to the request. Two hours later, Flynn spoke with McFarlane and relayed this conversation to Kislyak. According to McFarlane, Flynn remarked that the Russians wanted a better relationship and that their relationship was back on track. Flynn also told McFarlane that he believed that his phone call had made a difference. McFarlane recalled congratulating Flynn in response. Flynn spoke with some other transition team members that day, but does not recall whether they discussed the sanctions. <laughs> Flynn recalled discussing the sanctions with Bannon the next day, and that Bannon appeared to know about Flynn's conversation with Kislyak. Bannon, for his part, recalled meeting with Flynn that day, but said that he did not remember discussing sanctions with him. Additional information about Flynn's sanctions-related discussions with Kislyak and the handling of those discussions by Transition Team and the Trump administration is provided in Volume 2 of this report. In summary, the investigation established multiple links between Trump campaign officials and the individuals tied to the Russian government. Those links included Russian offers of assistance to the campaign, 
In some instances, the campaign was receptive to the offer, while in other instances, the campaign officials shied away. Ultimately, the investigation did not establish that the campaign coordinated or conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. This has been Pod Bless Robert Mueller, a translation for Texans, presented to you by the same folks who brought you Pod Bless Texas, featuring Lillian Salerno and Kendall Scudder. I promise Lillian Salerno is a part of this project, but she fell asleep. I'm sure she'll come in at some point. We will pick up on part five, which will be article five, um, prosecution and declination decisions. This is actually the last article that's inside of volume one, and we'll be able to go ahead and move on to the juicy volume two after that. So stick with us. Um, and hopefully we'll be able to get this sucker knocked out. Actually, I'd be surprised if you're actually listening to this. Is anybody actually listening to this? We'll see you in episode five.